Well, God is blessing the work, brethren. I think you all know that, and the work is growing in many different ways, and I won't make any more announcements. Mr. Wakefield mentioned a number of things in the sermonette, and we all understand that prophetic things are certainly speeding up. And I still think a lot of things are going to happen yet this calendar year, so you'll have to watch and see. But I think a lot of big things are going to happen even in the next eight or nine months, and it'll be a very exciting year, I'm sure, before it's over. So we'll see how that works out, but God's prophecies are moving along. But we are growing, and we're thanking God for that. But on the other hand, brethren, we have a long way to go. Remember last Sabbath on the Holy Day? I gave a sermon and talked about coming out of Egypt, and most of you were here. Exactly the same number were here, at least, and we talked about how bad this world is. I quoted from that book, The Marketing of Evil, which is a remarkable book, and showed, of course, and point after point how they have done, and Satan has done a masterful job. He is the master deceiver of simply taking over our society, particularly our media, and just causing them to be able to make evil look good. They make evil look good all through our society. And we've got to really understand that and overcome it. And we've got to resist Satan as he works through the society in many, many different ways. So we do need to understand that. And we do need to learn every lesson that God wants us to learn. And I hope as we go through these days of unleavened bread, and we still have some hours left, and from now on, I've said this again and again, I'll keep saying it, brethren, while we're here on this earth, all of you young people, you think you're going to be here forever, but one of the earliest tragedies that I've ever experienced in my life, a terrible tragedy, was one of my best friends, whom I spent thousands of hours with, Richard David Armstrong, Mr. Armstrong's older son, was crushed to death in an automobile accident at age 29, age 29, if you didn't hear me the first time. So even you young people in your late teens and 20s and 30s, don't assume you'll live forever. It can end very, very quickly. Let's every one of us realize our life is like a vapor. It here for a little while. It's gone. And when you get old as I am and look back, you realize how quick it's gone. So quickly. Try to learn every lesson God wants you to learn. If you're going through trials, try to learn the lessons. If you're going through money trials, if you're going through health trials, if you're going through marriage trials and you're upset at your mate or upset at yourself about the way things are working out, try to put God first. You won't be here in this flesh forever. Try to learn every lesson that God wants you to learn. And that's one of the biggest reasons we're here, of course, to have the character and through Christ in us to have him develop within us the character through the Holy Spirit so we can have those glorified spirit bodies. And Mr. Wakefield was referring to that, of course, in a very fine way in the sermonette, the offertory. But we've got to have the right kind of character. It's the same you, but you will have a spirit body, but you will still have your same personality, your basic same approach. And as you grow in your approach, as you grow in character, then are given a spirit body, you'll do better. But it'll still be you. And you've got to grow in that attitude to where you really want what God wants.
you feel like God feels, you think like God thinks, and you want what God wants, no matter what it is. And so you have to understand that that's part of coming out of sin, to give yourself totally to God, just like Jesus Christ did when he was about to die, a horrible death. And Christ knew what it was all about. He'd been God. He could see down how people were being crucified and screaming out from that cross. Even before he came into the human flesh, thousands of people were crucified. He wasn't unaware of what it involved. But he said, not my will, but your will be done, O God. And he meant it. And he went through it to pay for our sins. So we've got to understand that and appreciate what God has done and try to learn every lesson that he puts us here to learn and to try to come out of sin as the unleavened bread picture says putting leaven out of our lives. Again, as we explained last time, that shows us we ought to be coming out of sin, coming out of Egypt, out of modern Babylon. And God equates Egypt and Babylon together in a number of places in the Bible. Just as Israel came out of Egypt, we have to come out of spiritual Egypt or spiritual Babylon and in the process learn every lesson. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians at this time, if you would, brethren. And I'm going to be expounding some verses. I may not cover as many verses as we sometimes do, but I want to expound them so you see what they mean in context rather than skipping all over. And any of you who are new, I hope you'll follow me in your Bible so you can know and know that you know this is what the Bible says. It says these things very, very clearly. Why do we keep the days of unleavened bread? I thought they were those old Jews back there in ancient Israel. Well, we know that, of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter, I don't mean 1 Corinthians, I mean Zechariah chapter 14, Christ talks about the Feast of Tabernacles being kept. And all nations will go up to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And Egypt will be punished and there'll be no rain if they don't come up and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. We know so many other scriptures indicating that during the millennium, people will keep the Sabbath. They'll keep the holy days. They'll keep God's laws and so on. And during the millennium, God's people will have God's statutes. They'll keep the statutes. And among the statutes are the holy days. So we're to learn those things. One of those holy days, as we explained last time, the Passover, then the days of unleavened bread. And so in the New Testament... Here's a New Testament scripture about it, 1 Corinthians 5, and beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul is inspired to tell us, it is actually reported, he tells the Corinthians here at least, that there is sexual immorality among you. Yes, they had their problems back then. Even such sexual immorality or fornication, as the King James has it, as is not even named among the Gentiles. In other words, the Gentiles had a lot of perverse things. They had these temple harlots and so on. But even they recognized that incest was horrible. What a perversion of God's gift of sex, that a man should have his father's wife. It didn't say his mother. Apparently, this young man was going into his mother, uh, his mother-in-law or his stepmother, I should say. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed as absent in body. So Paul was writing them as the apostle telling them what to do. But present in spirit, my mind is here with you in this letter, my judgment. Present in spirit have already judged as though I were present concerning him who has done this deed. 
In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by Christ's authority, he says, as God's servant, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, in other words, my mind on this, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Turn this person over to Satan, <clears throat> that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. When people are expelled from the church for some really awful reason like that, often Satan will come after them, and God takes away his protection from them in every way. And sometimes they are struck down, and sometimes that striking down with something horrible causes them to repent. Mr. Armstrong has written, and I've heard him tell it two or three times in, in, in public in sermons and meetings, how people were trying to get rid of him and overthrow him up in Oregon in the early days of the work. And God struck down every one of them in a remarkable way. I remember that one of the first times I personally was involved in something like that, Mr. Armstrong's son, Richard David Armstrong, was temporarily pastor of the headquarters church. His father made him pastor of that church when Dick himself was very new in the ministry, but he had him get that responsibility. And there was this man causing division, and Dick had me join him because we were very close, and this man was causing a lot of division and would not repent, would not change, holding meetings in his home and trying to pray down the Spirit and got a bunch of people meeting with him and getting into Pentecostalism. And he, when we, Dick and I talked to him, he would not repent. He was trying to argue with us. And so Dick put him out. And he put him out in the name of Jesus Christ. And he quoted or paraphrased this very scripture. He turned him over to Satan the devil. Now this man was only in his 40s. Had nothing wrong with him. Within one year he was dead. Does that prove anything? Not necessarily to you. I'm just telling you what I saw. And what I heard Mr. Armstrong tell about his experiences. God backs up his true ministers. We're dealing with eternity, brethren, so please don't assume, well, we're just another church of God and, and it doesn't make any difference, we're just another church here and there. No, God himself has a special church he works with, he uses that church, we're teaching and practicing God's government more than any other group, so far as I know, in the right way. We're not putting people out and marking them very often at all, as you know. Some of these men who've appointed themselves as apostles or prophets in the last few years, are constantly kicking people out, threatening people. One of the most outrageous ones recently had his letter out to the brethren telling them to sell their property, to get their life savings, and send it all in. Kind of like the, 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 the old joke about the United States government. The, the, the government asks you, how much do you have? You tell them, send it all in. <laughs> but anyway, the government wants your money too. But that's what this man is doing. We don't do anything like that, and we're not going to. And I say it will be done over my dead body, but Mr. Ames will not do that either, as you know, and the other fine men who might succeed him. We are the church of God. But there is government, and God does not like sin. He does not like rebellion at all. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So here he's talking again about the days of unleavened bread. Leaven tends to spread through the dough. If you let people start talking, well, yeah, you know about Mr. League and he's too strict and yeah, 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 and it goes on and on. Because Mr. League makes mistakes. I know that will shock his wife. She may faint just hearing that. <laughs> I'm kidding. They're good friends of ours. 
My wife will have a stroke herself if she hears that I make mistakes. Of course, I'm kidding again. She knows my mistakes better than anyone. She can write the whole book about the the, the true story about Roderick C. Meredith. And all of you would have a stroke. <laughs> We're all human. <laughs> We're all human, brethren. But on the other hand, you have to understand that God hates sin. And we have to learn to hate sin. A little leaven, if you leave that attitude... Well, I want to criticize the ministry, and I want to pick at the church, and I don't agree with that. Well, if you have some problem, in a loving, kind, respectful way, go talk to the ministers about it. And if you can't get satisfaction from one, go to their boss. Come on up to Dr. Bonale or to me or whoever, Mr. Ames. But if you see that the ministry that God is using to do his work does not see it the way you do, then you should sincerely, very deeply consider your eternal life. Do you want to live forever? Do you want to be in God's kingdom, which means God's government? Are you willing to change? Are you willing to repent? Are you willing to learn? These are serious things we need to understand. Do you not know that a little leaven, it tends to spread, spread, spread as you keep talking and talking it up. If you had your feelings hurt or you disagree with something and you take it in a wrong way. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. So you're to get rid of the leaven in your life. And they were to get rid of this young man who was committing incest. That was the provocation for this letter. He says that you are truly unleavened. And in teaching the epistles of Paul class for about 30 years, I came to realize that this was probably talking about spiritual leaven. I mean, uh, since you are truly unleavened, physical leaven, I mean, because Paul wrote this without me going back and proving it. If you read chapter 11, you can see they just got through keeping the Passover, and Paul was writing from Ephesus to Corinth right across the sea. He probably had a boat go over there right away during the days of unleavened bread. So they were unleavened physically, but because they still had this sin, and he heard obviously they weren't doing anything about it, they were countenancing this young man and his rebellion. They were not unleavened spiritually. So he says, purge out the old leaven, uh, that you may be a new lump, since you're truly unleavened, and that is physically, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. It had just happened, they had just kept the Passover when he wrote this letter. Therefore let us keep the feast. They were during the days of unleavened bread when they received this letter. Let us keep the feast. What feast was he talking about? Well, I think you all know by now, it had to be the days of unleavened bread. And for you newer brethren, and I, I, you know, it's no sin to be a newer person and not know about this. I grew up for 19 years in the Methodist church. When I was a good Methodist, and I was fairly good as a Methodist, I guess, president of my Sunday school class for a while, I never heard the words unleavened bread. I never heard the words Feast of Tabernacles. I mean that. As far as I can remember, it was never mentioned. They never read those scriptures. They never talked about it, never referred to it at all. They didn't know anything about it. And most Protestants, most Catholics, calling themselves Christian, don't know anything about God's true Sabbaths or holy days. They don't get it. 
They're not taught it. They're deceived. But let us keep the feast. This is a New Testament command given by the Apostle Paul to do what? To keep the feast of unleavened bread. That's why we're here, because God tells us to be here. Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. So you're not to have the old physical leaven, but neither are you to have the malice and wickedness, which is spiritual leaven. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the big thing is not getting rid of every crumb. You ought to try to do that. It's all right to vacuum your car and and clean your house. But if you happen to find a cracker or a few crumbs of cracker, why don't fall away from the church because of that? Because you probably have far more spiritual heaven that you don't realize than you ever find some little cracker somewhere you didn't mean to get rid of. The spiritual leaven is what God is concerned about most of all. I wrote to you an epistle or letter. This was not the first letter. This is the first epistle. But Paul had already written them. This letter, 1 Corinthians, is the first letter God caused to be preserved in the Bible. But he did not let this other letter come into the Bible. I wrote you in my epistle, he'd already written them, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral of this world or the covetous extortioners, idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. That's right. You'd have to get in a spaceship, you know, if you work for some big company or factory or obviously you're going to have people around you in any place in the world that are sinners. But now I've written to you not to keep company. Don't just constantly fellowship with anyone named a brother, someone supposedly in the church who is a fornicator, covetous, idolater, reviler, or drunkard. And drunkenness is terrible in God's sight. A reviler is terrible in God's sight. Someone who speaks evil of the ministry or leaders and reviles them and puts them down in a terror. God wants us to learn respect for authority. A lot of people didn't like Harry Truman. And they reviled him in certain ways. Some of them didn't like Franklin Roosevelt. And because he was a kind of a big shot Eastern intellectual, and but he was a big man and so on, accomplished a lot. And Truman, you know, was the one who went out on the campaigns and they, he would talk real strongly about his political enemies. And so the newspaper reporters and others would say, give him hell, Harry. And he said, I don't give them hell. I just tell them the truth and they think it's hell. But anyway, he told, and sometimes they think about us if we tell them the truth. God doesn't like those things, not even to eat with such a person. So if someone's had to be put out for fornication or for adultery or drunkenness or brawling or some terrible thing, don't eat with them. Listen to God's government. God is testing you. Will you do forever what he tells you to do? He wants you to do that. For what am I to do with judging those who are outside? God is not trying to save them now. If God were trying to save all the people out here running up and down the street here and up in Chicago and New York and L.A. and everywhere, he'd do it. He's not trying to. But we are dealing with those inside. Do you not judge those who are within? But those who are outside, God judges. He's watching them and seeing what they do according to what they know. But later on, he will call them in tomorrow's world or most of them in the great white throne judgment. Therefore, put away... That's a command from yourselves, that wicked person. 
So he commanded them to put away that young man, and he was making an example of him, and that was a good example, and that is the sense he was a terrible example, but a strong example of something really bad, really bad. Kick him out. Have no fellowship with him. Don't eat with him. If you read 2 Corinthians, you read the chapters, the wrong chapter 2, 3, 4, where he tells them then to forgive him, bring him back, lest he be overcome with much sorrow. Apparently, the young man really repented, and Paul tells him now, bring him back. Then he goes on, and I'm going to not read all this about judging. I read that quite often, but starting over in chapter 6 now, verse 9. Let's skip down to chapter 6 and verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not do not be deceived, neither fornicators. A lot of you young people here and people, young people in the church around the world that may hear this later, they're affected by the world. I understand. I often thank God that I was born back in 1930. I'm glad I was not born in 1970 or 80 or 90 because the young men have to face temptations now I never had to face. I couldn't push a button and see all these terrible things happening right in front of my eyes, right in my living room. There wasn't any television. There wasn't any Internet. Nothing like that available. And when we tried to go see something bad, we had to look for it, frankly, in a certain way. And that was a blessing. But God hates fornication. Today, the young people go around sleeping with each other. And you read about in these popular magazines, whether it's Time or Newsweek or the Sunday Supplement Parade, about this movie or television star and her boyfriend got up on Sunday morning and fixed breakfast. And they just go on, oh, isn't that nice? Well, obviously, they've been sleeping together. They've been committing fornication. It doesn't say the fornicators woke up. They ought to be glad they weren't struck by lightning during the night. You know what I mean? They just act like it's a normal thing. That's the society we live in. Back in Sodom and Gomorrah, they had so many homosexuals, they just took it for granted after a while. Your conscience gets seared after a while by hearing all this stuff around you. Having sex with anyone except your mate is a sin before God. Fornicators will not be in God's kingdom. They won't be there. And if they don't repent somewhere along the line, they will be in a lake of fire. They'll hear a great roar, and the fire will finally sweep all over the earth in the second death. It's not going to be fun. Same thing about adulterers. A lot of people have a little problem in their marriage, and they start looking around, and they had a, want a newer model, and the Hollywood people always have that. If you have a goddess, this Hollywood goddess, living with a god, the male star, they often get divorced. You can't have two gods in the house. You know, who's going to worship whom? It doesn't work out very well. They're both filled with vanity. Just filled with vanity. And so they start looking around, and they want to try something else and something else. That's not God's way. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman who vow before God to give themselves to one another in marriage in a binding relationship that pictures the lasting relationship of love, of service, of kindness, of loyalty, loyalty that we're to have with Christ himself. It pictures the relationship of Christ and the church. And we're to have that kind of relationship with our husband or wife, not messing around, 
God hates that, and he will not let adulterers in his kingdom at all, period. Do not be deceived, he says, uh, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. He fells it out. Some of these preachers even get in these news columns, as you see, well, the New Testament doesn't have anything to say. What? Haven't they read the New Testament? They're not stupid. They're liars. They know better than that. The whole passage in Romans, the first chapter, just rails against the homosexuals. And this passage and others in the New Testament, inspired by Christ, strongly condemn homosexuals. But again, you people, and especially you young people, hear this other stuff all the time to where you take it for granted. That's not just another lifestyle, that one lifestyle, that's just his opinion, that opinion. And I tell you again, one of Satan's greatest and most egregious lies, a horrible lie, is the lie that homosexuals are born that way. There is no such thing. And I was reading an article just the other day. I should have brought it, but it was written by someone who was very highly intelligent. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal showing that there is not any homosexual gene. It does not exist. The homosexuals are all the time trying to give the impression they're born that way and can't help it. Well, if that's the case, then 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 is a lie. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, in fact, I'll turn over there just so I'll talk about it. We'll come back here. Here he says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. No temptation has taken you that you can't overcome. Are you tempted to be an alcoholic? Yes, millions are. They're born with that kind of background in their family or something, and they'll have that pull. Some men have a strong feeling of, of violence. They're growing grow up, and it comes down even as a family gene. It's a family trait, maybe even a family habit. They've seen it, and so they like violence. Other people have a strong tempt, temptation to do this or that. Some are, have a temptation to get into homosexuality. And nearly all that I've ever counseled, and I've counseled quite a number over the years, and I've read about it for many hours in different books about it, the vast majority of homosexuals have had no father, no real active father figure at all, and they just got all confused by a number of circumstances. I won't get into that. But you can overcome it. It's not something you're born with, otherwise God's Word is not true. No, they are not born that way. So don't let yourself be deceived nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards. So drunkards will not be in God's kingdom, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. They won't be there. We've got to come out of these things, brethren, any of these things that might apply to you. Such were some of you, Paul tells them. Some of them right there, a lot of them in that church had been fornicators probably because Corinth, the city city of Corinth, where they lived was the second center of Diana worship in the whole world. And they had 400 temple prostitutes there, these women that would have to do with that. I don't need to describe all of it, but it was a terrible center for that kind of fornication. They saw it all the time. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So that's it. You have been cleaned up. 
You have gone down into a watery grave telling God, I'm sorry, I'm burying the old self in baptism, and I'm going to come up and walk in newness of life with a promise, and it is a promise, the promised help of God's Holy Spirit. So I can make it. I can be in God's kingdom with the help of God's Spirit. So they had that problem too. So God tells them, yes, you can overcome, and you'd better overcome and not mess around. So, brethren, we need to understand all of that. Fornication is bad. Over in verse 18, verse 18, flee sexual immorality, or as it is in the King James, flee fornication. I think I've told you, I don't think I've said this a lot. I think I, excuse me, brought it out in one sermon Dr. Herman Hay, before he was a doctor of theology, when he was just my roommate in Ambassador College, back in the first year of Ambassador College, we went down to Tijuana, and then we drove on down to Ensenada, south of Tijuana. It was a little bit nicer uh, way back then. I don't know if it is now. But we had uh, Dick Armstrong took us in his car, and Herman Hay and Raymond Cole was one of the other pioneer students, and they took me along. There were the four of us. And we stayed in this hotel down there, and and the, the previous evening they had uh, in the re- hotel restaurant some mariachi music and girls dancing, and it was not bad at all. It just uh, had, you know, their swinging of their skirts and so on, so it wasn't a bad place. Although Herman Hay kind of turned his chair where he couldn't see them part of the time. He was very strict at that time. But the next morning, Herman grew up on a chicken farm, and he was used to getting up real early. The rest of us slept in. I don't mean real late, but we may have slept in until 7.30 or 8 because we were up the previous evening. And so at breakfast, Herman Hay ran into the hotel room, the the dining room where we were eating breakfast, and he was out of breath. And I said, well, what's wrong, Herman? He was out of breath and kind of flush-faced. And he told us, here it was even in the morning, and he was going along the street, and this young man comes up, you know, they said, they say, I better not repeat the words, they say, you want my sister? You want my sister? They'll keep offering you, supposedly their sister, for sex, prostitution. So Herman Hay did what the Bible said. It says, flee fornication. And he ran. <laughs> he fled. He ran all the way back to the hotel. I saw that he was really sincerely upset. Well, it's better to be that way than to be the other way. I think you all understand that. He just ran from it. And later he and Isabel, his wife, had a good marriage and four children and their daughter, Annalise's, in our church. She may hear this sermon later. When I'm down in Panama City, where she usually comes up and gives me a hug, and I like to hug Herman Hayes' daughter. She was a little girl uh, growing up next door when I was there living next door for about six years. On one side was, as Mr. and Mrs. Apartian knows, on one side was Mr. and Mrs. Apartian, and the other side was Herman and Isabel Hayes. So all three of us lived there together for quite a number of years. But at any rate... He fled, flee fornication. Don't mess around with it. A lot of young people allow themselves to be in an apartment all alone or a house all alone, or they go way off and start necking and petting, maybe in the back seat or of a car. Is that the way to flee fornication? No, it's not. Just like I've said, if you really want to quit smoking, let me under, let help you understand. Is the way to quit smoking 
to keep a a pack of cigarettes in their pocket just in case? Of course not. Get rid of it. If you're going to flee fornication, don't permit yourself to be in a situation where it's so easy to happen. Get away from it. Stay away from loose women. Stay away from loose men. Stay away from loose crowds of people. Stay away from television, the kind of television I mean, and the kind of Internet that would give you that this, this atmosphere where they pump out all that stuff and they water down God's way because you see the world being pumped into your brain by Satan's broadcasting system. Flee fornication. Get clear rid of it. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Let's understand that, brethren. Once we're called of God, my body is not my body. My body is God's body. It belongs to Him. I have no right to take it and kill someone with it. These hands are to help people, not to hurt them. When I was back in high school, I was in boxing. But I repented of that. It's kind of fun to think of it as just a young man being macho or whatever. But we're not to use our fists or our hands to hurt others. We're not to use our guns to kill others. So we have some hunting rifles. Why take the ammunition out? Don't keep a gun handy so you could move, use it around your home. One of your kids might get killed with it. And most of all, you don't want a temptation. I know one of the ministers I knew years ago just coming into the church had a gun around and he was going down to Mexico with his wife and decided to take this gun. He told me, I said, don't do that. He was the minister yet at that time. He later became one. I said, don't do that. I said, you might be tempted to use that. You're not going to probably want to kill someone, but you might aim at their feet and shoot right through their stomach and they'd be dead. You don't carry something where it'd be so easy to kill someone. You don't put yourself in a situation with someone of the opposite sex where you could so easily get into fornication or adultery. You don't do that. Your body is not your own, for you are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Would Christ do this? No, not the kind of thing I've been describing. And in your spirit which are God's. Glorify God in your body, the way you use your body and your spirit, that is your mental attitude. Don't let your mental attitude start picturing fornication, picturing adultery, picturing any of these things. Remember, Jesus Christ said in Matthew 5, 28, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. If a young man sees a pretty young woman walking down the street and her hair is bouncing and her dress is, you know, and so on, and he thinks, boy, she's really pretty. That's not sin. That's normal. But he's not to mentally undress her. He's not to mentally think about what might happen next and next and next and so go through this kind of thing in his head. That then becomes mental adultery or mental fornication, you see. Don't allow that kind of thought doesn't tell us to go to the opposite extreme and live in a convent or a monastery or live on the, in a cave somewhere. You want to have a mate someday and to a young man that women are pretty and they should be and that's fine, but just do it in a right way. So you belong to God. You've given your life to God. Come out of sin. Flee from sin. Stay clear away. Now, brethren, turn to Romans, if you would, at this time, and I'd better... 
get going here. I, I said I'd be explaining these things. And I'm giving you an Epistles of Paul class and taking too much time on each passage, but I hope it can really help you understand it in context. In Romans chapter 7, he'd been talking about how the law of God, when it comes to life in our body, it, it puts us under the death penalty. It makes sin real, and we realize we're wrong. But he said in verse 12, Romans 7, verse 12, Therefore the law, meaning the spiritual law of God, is holy, and the commandment holy, just, and good. It's a wonderful law. It tells you how to love God and how to love your neighbor. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin. In other words, you've always had this attitude of lust or hate or resentment or selfishness. But now the law of God points that out. He said, I had not known what covetousness was until the law said, thou shalt not covet. That's a sin, too, and the law of God brings that out. It might appear sin, you see. It's producing death in me through what is good. The Ten Commandments are good, but they do bring to light what sin is. And then you're convicted so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. You might realize then how bad it is. For we know that the law is spiritual, the Ten Commandments. But I am carnal, sold under sin. A lot of you say, how can I overcome? Well, we can overcome, and Paul shows us we've got to. For I am doing, or what I am doing, I do not understand. So now Paul shows how he had a hard time, brethren, and you can all identify with this, as I can. For what I want to do, I don't practice. But what I hate, that I do. Do you ever do something and then say, oh my, why did I do that? Why did I do that? Well, all of us go through that. We don't mean to do it. We just have human nature that suddenly gets the best of us, and we think some evil thought, or we say something bad about someone else, or whatever else it is, and we say, why did I do that? Because you have human nature, that's why. If then I do what I will not to do, in other words, your will, when you were baptized, said, I'm not going to do this anymore. Well, it meant you're not to practice this. You may slip. But your basic way of life has repented of that. You've repented of that as a basic way of life, I should say. And try not to ever do it again. But if I do what I do, will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, your very attitude of guilt shows you're agreeing with God's law. You know he's right and you know you're wrong. But now it is no longer I who do it. It's not my self-will, my normal desire as a Christian. It is not I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. The downward pull of human nature makes you do it. And so you've got to surround yourself with God's Word. You've got to surround yourself with righteous people. You've got to surround yourself with good thoughts and with God's Spirit. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Dwells no good thing, as the King James has it. That's right. In your normal human nature, you normally are selfish. You wouldn't go to the extent you would, except for Satan and so on and the world around you. But still, it's basically selfish. It's not really good. It's just normal human nature. 
For to will is present with me. You'd like to do good, but how to perform what is good I do not find. How do you overcome sin? Here's how. It goes on. For the good that I will to do I do not do. I'd like to do all these good things, but the evil that I will not do, that I practice. He keeps having these selfish thoughts. He keeps having these evil thoughts. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. I find then a law. Notice this, brethren, and get this. I'll give you the epistles of Paul class here. There are three laws spoken of here. Get it. A law. Here's law number one. That evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. What is that law? That law, of course, is the downward pull of human nature. It's like the law of gravity, as I've explained, and Mr. Armstrong explained. When you have a book here in your hand, you don't have to say, I'm going to throw this book down. It just automatically goes down. You just drop it, it automatically pulls downward. That's the way your human nature does. It just automatically pulls you down. So this is a law, like the law of, of gravity that pulls things down. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. That's law number two. First is the law of the downward pull of human nature. And verse 22, then, is the law of God, the Ten Commandments. So the downward pull of human nature pulls you down, but God's Ten Commandments tell you how to live. But they don't give you strength to do it. They just tell you what to do. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. What's the law in your mind? Why, the Ten Commandments. You've repented. You've accepted that way of life. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. So he calls it here a law. That first law pulls you down from your desire to keep the Ten Commandments. The law of sin. The downward pull of human nature in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? How am I going to put sin out of my life? We ask ourselves during the days of unleavened bread. How are we going to overcome when we have all these wretched thoughts come in our minds sometimes and we can't seem to help it? Who will deliver me? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how we're going to be delivered. So then with the mind I serve the law of God... That is the Ten Commandments, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now, our Protestant translators and Bible publishers, in their great wisdom, I'm kidding, most of the time they did a very good job, and I'm thankful God preserved the Bible, but sometimes they divide chapters at the very wrong time, and here they made a very serious mistake. They should have divided had chapter 8 start after verse 4 or later. Read right on. It's all one long manuscript, by the way. I should point out to some of you younger people or newer people, I've seen many of the oldest manuscripts personally. I've seen the Codex Vaticanus in the Vatican with Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong and Dick. I've seen the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Alexandrinus two or three times. Used to be in the British Museum. Now they moved it down the street to another museum. Those three, it's just Greek, all caps. No punctuation, no uh, commas, periods, paragraphs, just Greek, Greek, Greek in all caps. The translators saw that, and they had to put in the commas and the periods and the paragraphs, and they overall did a good job. And they're the ones that divided the books, the long scroll of Isaiah, into books and chapters, and same thing here. 
all the chapters of Romans, 16 chapters, but should read right on. So I myself serve the law of God in my mind. I want to do that, but the flesh, I serve sin. They leave you right there so the Protestant could say, well, we're helpless. We're automatically sinners, so just love Jesus, and we don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. Do you see how that lent itself to that by stopping right there. But what's the answer? It goes right on. There is therefore now no condemnation, chapter 8, verse 1, to those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, just because we accept him? No. Who do not walk according to the flesh. Oh, we don't just love Jesus. We do not walk that way anymore. We have quit. We have repented. But according to the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Notice this law, chapter 8, verse 2. This is law number 3. Law number 1 is the law of sin and my members, the downward pull of human nature. Law 2 is the law of the God, which tells you what to do, but doesn't give you strength to do it. And here is law number 3, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Christ lives His life in you, and He then gives you the strength to keep God's law and to overcome the downward pull of human nature. That's the answer has made me free from the law of sin, the downward pull of flesh. For what the law, that is the Ten Commandments, could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, I didn't have the strength to keep them, God did by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Hebrews chapter 4.15, you could put in your margin or some in your notes, Hebrews 4.15, Christ was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. So he lived a perfect life in the flesh, fully tempted, just like we are. He showed us it can be done. Then you tie that in with, of course, Galatians 2.20, my favorite scripture. Christ lives in me, Paul said. So then if you have Christ living in you, you can overcome, just like Christ did. Christ lives in you, he overcome. So he will live in you, and then you will overcome through Christ in you. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is the power. So we have the downward pull of human nature like the law of gravity, and the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is like the uh, uh, law of aerodynamics. If you have... Uh, uh, even a, a, a fully loaded 747, I think it was like a half a ton or something. No, so many tons. I mean, I forgot so many thousand pounds. I better not try to remember. I used to have that and recite it. But anyway, we've got tens of thousands of pounds. How can it get off the ground? Well, if you have a great bunch of big jet engines and you have great big huge wingspan and then you go fast enough, then that lifts that plane off the ground. The law of aerodynamics helps you lift up. And that's the way the Spirit of God in you will do it, will help you lift up and overcome the downward pull of human nature, the law of sin, which is in your members. So the law, the Ten Commandments, was weak in your flesh because you had the downward pull. God then made it possible who was sent by sending Jesus to set us the example, and now he lives in us. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He showed us it was possible to overcome it. Why? How? Verse 4. That, get it, brethren, listen carefully, that the righteous requirement of the law, 
You know, all these Protestant preachers are out every Sunday almost saying, you can't keep the law and it's too hard and blah, blah, blah. No, Paul says, this is done that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled what? In Christ who did it instead of us? No. The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We can do it. We can do it. How? Well, borrow from President Obama. Yes, we can. (laughs) Yes, we can. We can do it through Christ in us. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, who can fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in us, who do not walk according to the flesh. Do we ever make a mistake? Of course, but we don't walk that way. Do I ever make mistakes? Yes. But I don't walk that way, God willing. I might make plenty of mistakes, but I don't go around killing or committing adultery or fornication or lying or stealing or anything. That's not my walk. That's not the walk of most of you. We don't walk that way. Our basic way of life has been changed. We walk a different way of life. We do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So that's the answer. Christ in you. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on fleshly things. And brethren, again, if you watch TV all the time and you see all this stuff pouring into your mind from the world, it gives you a wrong, just a wrong spirit comes over you, a whole wrong view of the world. It's so easy to think like the world thinks. And you have the mind of Satan coming in there. So you've got to have a different mind. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. To have that kind of mind leads to what? Death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, which you don't have yet, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Your normal, this is not some unusually mind like Adolf Hitler or some terrible person. The carnal mind means the normal, the normal average human mind of a person. The carnal mind automatically is what? Enmity against God, or as the Moffat translation has it, hostile to God. The normal carnal man doesn't want some big God telling him what to do. They resent that. And they rebel against it. Why? For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. They don't like that. They hate that God. And they will hate us if we preach that God powerfully to the world. They don't want a real God telling them what to do. They have a hostility against that. So then those that are in the flesh, we're all in the flesh, but here he's talking about the fleshly attitude, cannot please God. But, verse 9, read carefully, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. You're walking in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, God's Holy Spirit has to live in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not of his. So again, we have to go back to my favorite verse, of course, Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live with the faith of, it ought to be, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we have to have Christ living within us. And his faith, his real relationship with God is what's living in us. Then through that power, Christ in us, we can overcome and we will overcome. 
So, brethren, let's understand that that's very, very important that we grasp all these aspects of things. Brethren, each of us needs to think about our sins. I hope each one of you, as I'm preaching, will think about your sins and sincerely want to overcome. Do you want to live forever? Do you really want to live forever? If you do, really set yourself to overcome. Set yourself to become like Jesus Christ. We go through various phases in this life. When we're a little kid, we're automatically selfish. I mean, I've had six children and now ten grandchildren, and they're really lovable. We really like our newest little grandchild, Keely, who's just four or five months old, but she's totally selfish. Whenever she feels a hunger pain, she goes, ah! You know, and I tell the young couple, enjoy your honeymoon while you can, and it's better to wait a year or two before you have your first child. So you can take trips together, walk out under the moon together at night and enjoy yourself. Because once the baby comes, then you're, you know, right in the middle of the night. <laughs> destroys your whole peace of mind. You have to get used to it. Right? Changes your whole way of life. So they don't mean to be selfish. They just automatically are. We laugh at that. They can't help it, of course. That's the way I was and the way you were. As we get older, a little child growing up into their early teens will get very vain and selfish and often think, well, dad and mother are stupid and they don't know anything. And, of course, then you get a little bit older and realize your parents knew more than you thought they did and you grow out of that stage. And then you get into the young manhood and womanhood stage in your 20s and 30s. And then you have to beware of covetousness because it says in the Bible over and over, the, the love of many is a root of all evils. It's not the only root. There are many roots, but it is a root, just lusting for more power, more money. And another big root of evil is sex, of course. And sometimes we think that prostitutes are terrible. These young women, why would they do this? Why would they sell their bodies? They must be a terrible, you know, sex maniacs or something. No, most young women don't want to be there. They used to have articles in the Los Angeles Times about the young girls who'd run away from home and they'd come out on the bus from, you know, El Paso or Kansas City or somewhere and these men would be watching in the bus station to see if some innocent girl get off and look around. She'd never been there before. They'd spot her right away and try to go over, can I help you and I can show you some things? And all of a sudden she finds herself in some terrible rooming house and she's beaten, beaten up, beaten to a pulp and raped and raped and raped. Then she's humiliated and she's forced into prostitution, forced into it by these rotten skunks who call themselves men. Often men are behind it. They want money. They want to use her body for money. This is a pretty sick world, but these things happen all around us all the time. And we have to understand it. We've got to come out of the world and pray with our whole hearts for Christ's kingdom to come. But at any rate, in your young youth, you, you want power, you want money, and you want sex. And so young people get into various things of, of chasing around and getting into fornication. And sometimes because wanting fun, they'll want to get drunk or try out drugs and blow their mind and all kinds of stupid stuff. So then in your late 40s and 50s, sometimes you go through a different stage, your early middle age. And then you have a sort of vain attitude of being very important in some cases and looking down on others. In other cases, a couple then has been married 
15 or 25 years and the kids are grown and they get bored with one another. And then they decide that they don't really love the mate that they've been married to already for 15 or 25 years and they want to try out a new model, a new model. And they begin to look around and the woman goes through the menopause and sometimes, as my wife has said, we've seen it happen among others and known about it, they go nuts. I remember we had a leading person at Big Sandy we all knew very, very well and he mentioned how his wife just literally went nuts. I knew him really well. He was a nice man. And uh, and I mean, we knew he was a nice man. And later his wife admitted he didn't do anything bad. She just went through the menopause. And she threw a hot iron at him a few times. She threw dishes at him and yelled at him. She literally went nuts for two or three years during the menopause. Some women have left their husbands during that time because they don't think straight. And so they've got to realize with these hormones raging and raging, I'm right up to this point, and some couples think, even apart from the menopause, is this all there is? Is this all there is? My mate's not Hollywood handsome or Hollywood beautiful, and I think I could try someone else and do better. You could try someone else. God says you entered into a covenant and you are bound by God until death does you part. And you must not go looking around and looking around. That is adultery, and that is whoredom, and that is against God's law, and that will cut you off from eternal life and put you into the lake of fire unless you repent of that. Please understand that. We all go through these temptations at various stages of our lives. Then in our old age, some of us are... I'm not really in old age, as you know. Mr. Apartheid and I decided a number of years ago that old age begins at 90. We did that as a joke, of course. So he finally got it into his old age when he got up to 94. But at any rate, uh, we have different temptations. We have the temptation to let down or stay home and do nothing or feel sorry for ourselves or whatever it is. You have different types of temptations at the different stages of life. Don't give in to any one of them. Think about where are you, what temptation are you going to give in to, and fight with all your heart. Fight the good fight of faith and ask Christ to come and live his life in you so you don't give in to any of these temptations in any way. That is so important, brethren, and I hope we do understand. All right, let's turn back to Philippians chapter 1, if you would. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 1 and one of my favorite scriptures. But I want us to go over it here again. In verse 18, he's been talking about how some were attacking him and false prophets. And he said in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached. We should be thankful that Christ is preached in whatever way, if it's partly true, and it must have been there then. In this I rejoice and will rejoice. For I know that... This will turn out to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, get this, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body. We want Christ to be magnified in our body. And I hope you think that way. Is Christ magnified in what you think and say and do and how you try to help others? Magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. 
I should hope that Christ would be magnified in my body, and I want to serve Christ as long as I can. But if I became a distraction or lost my marbles or something, I should be willing to go to sleep and say, Well, God, you've used me now, and now it's time for me to either retire or, you know, uh, go under and be buried and wait the resurrection. And I'd get mad at God one way or the other. I'm just using myself as an example so you get it. We've got to sincerely think like God thinks, feel like God feels, and want what God wants, even if that means death. The Apostle Paul had that. He was willing to die. The Apostle Peter was told, as you know there in in Peter, how he was going to be crucified. Christ showed him what was going to happen. Did Peter turn aside? No. He said, well, what about this guy, meaning John? And Christ said, you don't worry about him. You worry about you. And they took it to Pete that John was going to live forever. He didn't say that. He just said he's not going to die that kind of death. And he lived to old age, apparently. And maybe he died in peace. We don't know. But at any rate, we ought to have Christ magnified in our body. We've got to come all the way out of sin the best we can and serve all others and set an example to others as best we can as long as we are here. And even if we die, brethren, we should try to set an example in that. What did Jacob do when he started to die? Oh, I'm going to die. I've got to do this and that. No. He said to the boys, he said, boys, gather around me. Now, you know, Reuben, you have this, and this is going to happen to you, and this is going to happen to you, Judah, and this is going to happen to you, Joseph, and you guys carry on. I'm going to go to sleep. (laughs) He gave them their final instructions, so to speak. And then he went to sleep. Have a positive attitude about life and about death. That's not always easy. But have Christ magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ. Our purpose should be, our life should be to glorify Christ. That's our purpose, brethren. Have Christ live in us, so then we're fit to live forever. That's why we should come all the way out of sin, to live as Christ and to die as gain. If you're converted, then the next split second, you'll be in God's family. You've got it made. You don't have any more trials and tests. So our attitude should be that, that a life belongs to God in every way. Now let's turn here at this point, uh, brethren. Want to not run over. Let's turn back to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6 again. And I read this last time, but I can't resist going back again. I hope you'll often turn to this. John chapter 6 and beginning in verse 53. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. You've got to have Christ fully dominating your mind, your heart, your body, your personality, your character. You must eat and drink of Jesus Christ. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. But is he going to never die? No, he will die, you know, unless Christ comes first. And I will raise him up at the last day, showing Christ he will have the presence of eternal life, God's Spirit in him, but he would still need to be raised up. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood... Here's the key, abides in me and I in him. 
with Christ abiding in you through his spirit, that is spiritually eating and drinking of Jesus Christ. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. As I've said before, don't want to wear you out with it, but you know the keys. You've got to feed on Christ. You've got to drink into this book regularly, hopefully every day. Read some of the Bible. Feed on it, just like if you feed on food. You say, well, I I can't eat three meals a day unless I've read the Bible a little bit at least and feed on Christ. Feed on Christ, drink into the Bible, the mind of God, the character of God in print. Then you meditate, think over what you read in the Bible. Then you pray on your knees and cry out to God for forgiveness, for breaking his law, going the wrong way, and ask him for strength to help you live by this teaching, by this way of life. Pray to God for his love and joy and peace, his faith, his mind, his power to overcome. His power to overcome and come out of sin. You pray to God. And then from time to time, every month or two, probably best every month for most of us, if we're not too sick or too old, I'm not too old yet, to fast about once a month. Eat nothing. And if you're young and healthy, you could fast two or three times a month. That's up to your situation. And devote ourselves during that day of fasting for extra Bible study and prayer and meditation, crying out to God for strength from Him. So use those tools. And the fifth key is to exercise God's Spirit. Constantly pray to God and say, Now I do want to go out today as I walk out this door to love you, Father, to serve you, to honor you. Help me love my brethren. Help me to be a giver and not a getter. As Mr. Wakefield brought out, God is a giver. God is the giver of every good and every perfect gift. He wants us to learn to be like that and follow our Father in heaven and the example of Christ. So this is important to feed on Christ, and we've got to learn to be that way and do that way. Now turn with to, to Matthew chapter 10 at this point. Matthew, uh, uh, brethren, and we'll turn to chapter 10 and beginning in verse 34. I'm, uh, he said here, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is Matthew chapter 10, verse 35. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Yes, we'll have problems sometimes even in our own family. And a man's foes will be those of his own household. And I know that was the way with me. My parents didn't understand what I was doing at first and got all upset about it. And the most hateful letter I've ever received in my life was written by my mother's sister. I won't name which one. She had about six sisters. But she just tried to rake me over the coal for killing my mother, making my mother so sad by going off with this Armstrongism. Well, later I forgave her, and we would go up to see her once in a while, but she was really mad. She thought, you're hurting my sister. You know, she didn't understand He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You can't love your family more than God. You should love them, but you've got to love God. You've got to love Christ who is God more because every good and wonderful, beautiful thing you see in your wife is there from God. Every good and strong and wise and wonderful thing you see in your husband is from God. Every good thing you see in one of your children, you love your children, but they came from God. You worship God. You do not worship your family. 
You must not worship your family. Christ comes first. So he does not take his cross. They all know what they meant. A symbol of trial and test and suffering. Are you willing to go through that? And follow me is not worthy of me. Verse 30. He who finds his life will lose it. And brethren, too many people in the church, too many of you in this hall, too many of you around the world in the, in the church, I know that because you're human. You want to find your life. I find myself doing that sometimes, and I have to repent every now and then. It's not wrong to eat in a nice restaurant. It's not wrong to have a nice trip. It's not wrong to go out and see beautiful things. But your constant goal is to serve the self to see everything you want to see, to eat out in all the nice places, to try out all the good wines, to go do this and go do that, and find your life, find your life, then you lose it. You've got to say, no, my life belongs to God. I can't see every wonderful place on earth I like to see. I read a lot and think about the world a lot because I've learned to travel and needed to and And I'd like to see South America one time. And I've talked about doing that with Mario. He's invited me to go with him. But now that I'm old, I guess I've skipped that altogether. I've never seen Alaska. I want to see Alaska. I'd like to see several key things on earth. I may not see them. So what? I'm going to see them all in tomorrow's world. (laughs) They may not be exactly like now. But the main thing I'd better do with my life is serve the church of God and build this work to prepare for the kingdom of God. And that's what you've got to do. You can't eat at every nice restaurant, see every interesting city, and go here and go there and do all the things you'd like to do. It's not wrong to do some of those things, but get them in right balance. Get them in right balance and put God first in the way you use your time, your energy, your strength, your money, your mental outlook on everything. God's kingdom, God's work comes first. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Get rid of sin. Come completely out of Egypt by having that attitude. All right, let's now turn back to Exodus. We went through that last time, so I won't read the early part of it where Christ told them to keep the Passover. But let's turn now to Exodus 13. In Exodus 13, he reviewed it again in verse 6. Seven days you'll eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day shall be a feast of the Lord. He said in verse 9, It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law, God's law, it's part of God's law, may be in your uh, mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. So he says part of the meaning of this is to recognize that God brought you out. You can't go out on your own. God brought you out of Egypt. God brought you out of Babylon. God brought you out. You've got to have faith and trust in God. And so as they came out, it says in verse 21, the ever-living one went before them. This is Yahweh, the eternal, as Mr. Armstrong usually said it in the short way. The eternal, the one who had life within himself, who became Jesus Christ. This was Christ. He went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them in the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of night by fire from before the people. He was always there leading them, if they would follow 
Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, chapter 14, Speak to the children of Israel and tell them that they are to go out this way, for Pharaoh will come after them, and he'll find them closed in the land. Then I will harden, verse 4, Pharaoh's heart. God told them in advance, I'm going to stir up Pharaoh. He's going to think they're trapped between the mountains and the sea. I've got them. And I'll gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the ever-living one. I'm going to show these people the greatest empire on earth at that time, who God is. And my brethren, whether I live another 10 years or not, during that time or not too long after that time, God's going to begin to intervene. and He's going to begin to show in a way I know you've not seen it and I've not seen it. But I believe this book and I've seen enough specific prophecies happen that I know it's going to happen. God will begin to show who God is. He's going to shake this nation that has never been shaken before, literally in earthquakes and terrible disease epidemics and drought, famine, fires, everything. And humble these people such as they've never, ever been humbled. And the same thing for the Canadians and the British and Australians and especially the peoples of Israel. And then the rest of the nations will also suffer as well. This will begin to happen so they will know who God is. And so Pharaoh heard they were over there. And so he made ready his chariots and pursued after them. And it says in verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near the children of Israel, they were still carnal. They didn't know. They lifted up their eyes and saw this army marching. Well, there were a lot of them, but they didn't have weapons. Here were trained men of war coming at them with the very latest weaponry of that time. And the greatest, you know, they were all organized. They knew they were in trouble. They were in trouble. They had their little babies with them and their wives. What were they going to do? And they were afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the eternal. Then they said to Moses, they got mad at him. Some of you may get mad at me or Mr. Ames or others at times that we get persecuted. Why did you bring us into this persecution? Why did you let this happen? Well, we're telling you the way to eternal life. That's why. But you go through trials and tests along the way. That's why. Then they said to Moses, because there are no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away uh, to die in the wilderness? What's wrong with you? Then God showed Moses and he told them here in verse uh, 13, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will see them again no more forever. I'll wipe them out. And the world around will hear about it and begin to know who God is. The eternal will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. In other words, you will shut up (laughs) and quit griping. And the eternal said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Forward. Drowned? No, he said, I'll take care of it. I am God. Lift up your rod, stretch it across the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go through in the midst of the sea. And then it tells how Moses did that. And the sea came back. And the sea was like a wall, as it says, an absolute wall on each side of them. It was, it was amazing. And so the, it says here uh, in verse 26, the over eternal said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians. A whole wall of water now came on the Egyptians when they came in trying to follow Israel. And I don't think most of them drowned in some slow drowned. I think the walls of water were tons of water, and it probably their rib cage probably exploded 
They just died instantly. Most of them just crushed to death by a huge woof like that. God knew they weren't converted. You say, well, God is mean. No, they were carnal. They were hurting themselves by their whole way of life and paganism. They were never going to be really happy in that paganism. God knew that. So what did he do? He put them in pink file number 13. And after the millennium, he'll tell the angels, activate pink file number 13. Bam, they're all up again in the great white throne judgment. And they will have a genuine opportunity to know that God that they never knew before. He'll say, remember back there, fellas? Oh, yeah, we remember that. Well, I, that was me. I am God. This whole world is at peace now. And I'm going to teach you through my servants here a way of life. And you will learn the way of peace. And you will learn to come out of your paganism. And you will learn to come out of sin. So he overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And then the waters returned. And all the army of Egypt, verse 28, came into the sea. After them, not so much as one of them remained. That's interesting. He could have let a whole bunch of them live, but he just drowned every single one. But the children of Israel walked on the dry land in the midst of the sea. Verse 29, and the waters were a wall. So it showed it wasn't just some ankle-deep thing like some of these modern commentators try to say, the wall maybe 20, 40 feet up, massive amount of water. The waters were a wall on their right hand and on their left. So the Eternal saved Israel that day out of the land of Egypt, and the Egyptians uh, handed the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore as their bodies washed ashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the ever-living one had done in Egypt, and the people feared the eternal. Not like a monster, as I've said, but they had an awe that God is God. And we need to have an awe of that God. And the fear of God can help us come out of sin if we realize how God is real, and we need his help. And as he delivered ancient Israel... He will deliver us. He will give us the power. He will give us the love and joy and peace, the faith, the mind, the wisdom to overcome the spiritual strength. So the people feared the eternal and they believed the eternal and his servant Moses. You should have right respect for the ministry. God wants you to, to respect. Then you can learn more that way. You can more easily gain eternal life that way. So have the awe of God that you need, the deep respect for God, for his servants, for his word, and know that he is the one who will deliver. He will never leave you nor forsake you. It is his power, his power that will bring you out of Egypt, his power that will finally help you and me to overcome.